One chilly night in November 1912, a group of young women gathered together to share their writing with each other. They were all newly arrived first-year students at Somerville College in Oxford, part of a cohort of women undergraduates who were still pushing for full equality at the university and in the world at large. Years would elapse between them finishing their studies and actually receiving their degrees, for instance, because at this time Oxford allowed women to take the examinations, but not to formally graduate. The group was founded as a writing circle, a place for budding poets, playwrights and novelists to share works in progress, receive criticism from other members and offer their views in turn. Unlike many student enthusiasms, it persisted throughout its members' university years and beyond, shaping the course of their lives and relationships. It's no exaggeration to say that it's to this little society that we owe the creation of Peter Whimsey and Harriet Vane as well as numerous other literary works and distinguished boundary-pushing careers. It was the group's best-known member, in fact, Dorothy L. Sayers, who came up with its name. Introducing the Mutual Admiration Society. Welcome to She Done It. I'm Caroline Crampton. In this episode, we're going to get to know this group of women much better and learn how their friendships and their work influence the direction of detective fiction and women's rights. When a 19-year-old Dorothy Sayers named the writing group she had just formed with her new Somerville friends the Mutual Admiration Society... She was reflecting the fact that university women of her time had to be constantly protective of their intellectual endeavours from ridicule and cynicism. At the same time, she was making a joke out of this perennial difficulty, something else that would come to be very typical of the society's members, who always seemed to have a comic riposte at the ready. They arrived about 1912. Right away in their first their first term, they sort of formed this group where they um, would get together in their respective you know dorm rooms and have cocoa and coffee and share what they'd written and offer each other criticism. So it was a sort of um, literary criticism society, basically. And Dorothy L. Sayers was one of the founding members, and she was the one who actually named the group. So she said, we might as well call ourselves a mutual admiration society because everybody else will anyway. <laughs> so it was a sort of preemptive strike, although they were not actually, they were very critical of each other. So they, they weren't sort of the, the pejorative you know, meaning of, of mutual admiration society at all. This is Mo Moulton, a senior lecturer in history at the University of Birmingham and the author of a new book titled The Mutual Admiration Society. How Dorothy L. Sayers and her Oxford Circle remade the world for women. I'll let Mo introduce you to the key figures that you're going to hear about today. All total, over the course of the, their time at Oxford, there were probably eight to ten people who were at least tangentially part of the society. In the book, though, I focus on this kind of core group of about four or five who were in the society and and who kept it going throughout their lives. I mean, that's kind of the amazing thing. Lots of people form clubs at university, but they actually continued sharing work and criticizing each other's work for decades and decades. Most of them had quite long lives. So Dorothy L. Sayers is the most famous one. She became a detective novelist, and then she was also a popular uh, theologian and um, an advertising copywriter, among other things. 
Muriel St. Clair Byrne was one of the later members to join the group. So she she came to Oxford a few years later, but she she became an important part of the of the society. Um, and she became a historian um, of Elizabethan England, and she was very interested in the theater as well. And there's Caris Barnett Frankenberg. She was Caris Barnett at university and then became Caris Frankenberg. She became a um, child advice manual writer, um, child rearing advice, and a birth control advocate. And she was one of the first female justices of the peace. So this kind of public facing, she was interested in, in juvenile delinquency and, and children and, um, and motherhood, really. Um, then there's Dorothy Rowe. She became an amateur theater director, and she was also an English teacher in Bournemouth. Muriel Yeager, uh, who became a science fiction novelist and playwright and, uh, and also a historian later, later in her life. And then, and then the last of the person who I write a lot about in the book is Amphilis. This is the best name, Amphilis Throckmorton Middlemore. Her friends called her Phil. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, she also became an academic. She was a, a, an English lecturer. Um, she moved over to uh, Pennsylvania and worked at Bryn Mawr briefly. While they were students at Somerville, the members of the Mutual Admiration Society took their studies with differing levels of seriousness but they always found time for sharing their writing and teasing each other. For instance, on one occasion before they went home for the Christmas vacation, Dorothy Sayers had told the group that she planned to write a story told from the perspective of the men inside the wooden horse at Troy. At their first meeting back in January, she'd got quite far into reading out what she'd actually worked on, which was a miracle play about the three magi, before Dorothy Rowe loudly asked, but was this happening inside the wooden horse? To general hilarity. They also played practical jokes on each other, put on plays and attended costume parties. Their dressing up often defied gender conventions, with Muriel St. Clair Byrne in particular being keen to adopt masculine roles, which is a theme she would explore in a memoir later in her life. Whatever plans the members of the society might have had for their post-university careers, the First World War disrupted everything. With male friends and relations fighting in Europe, Sayers and her friends finished their studies in a very different Oxford to the one that they had entered in 1912. They saw out the war and its immediate aftermath with nursing, teaching, volunteering and translation work, and grieved for their friends and brothers who did not make it back from the trenches. The decade after the war ended was a difficult time for all of them, as they struggled to forge a path in the world as educated career women. In their book, Mo heads one of the chapters about this with the question, teach or marry? And it was this stark choice that all the members of the Mutual Admiration Society had before them. While at Somerville, the combined support of their parents and the college had provided the mental space and the room of one's own that Virginia Woolf would name in 1929 as being essential for a woman to write fiction. Out in wider British society, where the Representation of the People Act of 1918 had extended the vote only to women over the age of 30, it was more difficult to find roles that they fitted into that weren't that of teacher or wife. The job market favoured men who were returning from the war, 
And in any case, the idea of a woman with a top university degree was so new that there just weren't that many ready-made opportunities for them. Teaching remained an ever-present option, even the default for the educated woman who wanted to remain respectable and uncontroversial. And indeed, most of the members of the society did teach at one point or another. Even Dorothy Sayers, who seems like she was not at all suited as a personality to the classroom, did some supply teaching to make ends meet. Dorothy Rowe, however, seems to have found a real vocation in teaching and inspired successive generations of students at her school in Bournemouth with her challenging and theatrical literature lessons. Others, like Sayers and Jaeger, were trying to make their way as writers, and Muriel St. Clair Byrne was taking her first steps towards a career as a historian, although she would struggle throughout her life with the lack of permanent academic research posts available for women. It was when they started to become more settled in their own careers, Mo says, that the extraordinary thing happened. Unlike most student societies, or even university friendships, which peter out or atrophy as the years go by, the Mutual Admiration Society came back together and became intimately involved in each other's lives again. So they were all sort of struggling to make ends meet. And so the 1920s, there's sort of connections and then, and, then, and then distances as well. And then in the late 1920s is when they sort of become um, a, little, a little more established and come back together uh, as a group. They went on holidays together. They would um, you know, rent, rent a cabin or a cottage in like Devon um, or, or the South Downs and sort of hang out. They exchanged drafts of writing and offered each other suggestions and sometimes extraordinarily harsh criticism. Um, and, then, and then in some cases they collaborated as well. One of these collaborations was a series of educational books called Latin with Laughter. The idea was that young mothers might want to teach their children some Latin before they went to school, um, which kind of orients you to the, the class background here, right? But to give them a head start on Latin. And so there are these these kind of hilarious little stories that children can learn in Latin and in English about various funny situations. And so Karis wrote the um, the text in, in, in Latin and, and the translations. Um, and then uh, Dorothy Rowe wrote, uh, drew, drew the illustrations. So she drew these little cartoons of the she donkey walks up the road. The young boy throws a rock, it's that, it's that sort of thing. Although it sounds like fun and represents an interesting attempt by its authors to give more educational agency to middle-class mothers, Latin with Laughter is far from the most interesting literary collaboration to come from the post-university incarnation of the Mutual Admiration Society. And there'll be more on that after the break. In History's Secret Heroes, Helena Bonham Carter shines a light on extraordinary stories from World War II. This is a series that tells the tales from the Second World War that are unjustly less well-known than the oft-repeated histories of that time. Personally, I tend to default to the position that military history, or the history of wars as it is usually told, is just not for me. But diving into this series has shown me that I can be wrong about that, and that maybe I just haven't been experiencing the right sort of history. The brand new second series of History's Secret Heroes is out now, and it's absolutely full of brilliant episodes that had me gripped from start to finish. In it, we learn how a single woman, Christine Granville, skied into occupied Poland and gathered essential intelligence for the Allies, which changed the course of the war. We also look at how Raymond Gorem used his circus skills to break in and out of a Nazi internment camp to sneak in food and supplies for his family, and how a young Filipino woman named Josefina Guerrero 
took advantage of her health condition to join the resistance and become one of the most consequential spies of World War II. I'm especially drawn to stories about code breaking, as I love puzzles, and to me it often feels like the real-life counterpart to solving a mystery. I loved the episode called The Unbreakable Navajo Code, about a group of Native American soldiers who devised a code for the Allies' use, and I also really enjoyed the one about Emily Anderson, an Irish cryptanalyst who worked both at Bletchley Park in the UK and then in Cairo to decrypt vital intelligence. Helena Bonham Carter voices all of these episodes in a way that makes you feel like they're just being whispered directly into your ear by someone who really knows how to tell a dramatic tale to full effect. There are experts interviewed, but also friends, family members and witnesses, so each story feels personal and intimate as well as historically significant. Episodes will be released on Mondays, wherever you get your podcasts. But if you're in the UK, you can listen to the full series now, first on BBC Sounds. In 1920, while she was sick with the mumps, Dorothy Sayers became obsessed with reading Sexton Blake stories. Sexton Blake is a detective character who had been appearing in magazine serials and comic strips since 1893. And while she was ill, Sayers wrote to her friends begging them to send more magazines so she could keep up with his adventures. Once she was better, she and Jim Yeager hatched a plan to write some elevated criticism of the Blake stories. They wanted to write an article equating these pulpy comic books with, quote, the old romance cycles and mythical figures like Robin Hood. Sayers and Jim got stuck in on it, and under the pseudonym of Alexander Mitchingham, they had a great time comparing Blake to Jesus and finding allusions to all other sorts of religious events in the stories. In the book, Mo makes the point that this is a scholarly tactic typical of the Mutual Admiration Society members. It's both a bit of good fun, but it was also done with the intention of taking mass culture seriously and applying a critical lens to popular literature. This is how Sayers approached her own detective fiction. Her first Peter Whimsey novel, Whose Body, was published in 1923. She had done various jobs since the war ended, including school teaching and translation, and had even considered returning to university for further study. She contemplated applying for a postgraduate Bachelor of Letters degree, the same B-lit that Harriet Vane considers doing in Gordy Knight. Sayers's proposed thesis would have taken her Sexton Blake studies much further. It had a proposed title of The Permanent Elements in Popular Heroic Fiction with a Special Study of Modern Criminological Romance. She never did do that degree, but with the whimsy novels, she was always trying new ways of pushing the popular detective novel form further, introducing complicated legal or medical concepts, writing from different perspectives, or situating her sleuth in environments that hadn't previously hosted a whodunit. The spirit of the Mutual Admiration Society, whose members sought to take their educational advantages and spread them more widely to the general public, was to the fore in her writing. She wanted to mix the learned and the readable, to find a way of blending highbrow and lowbrow forms into a new kind of writing. One of the Society's greatest collaborative works grew out of Sayers' efforts in this area. Here's Mo again, describing how Sayers and Muriel St. Clair Byrne came to write together again, long after they left university. They collaborated on, well, a range of things, um, essays and, and, and articles and, and dialogues and stuff. But most interesting to me is their collaboration on Busman's Honeymoon, 
Muriel St. Clair Byrne wrote about history. She wrote about um, theatrical history. She wrote lots of book reviews about things about costumes and stuff like that. Um, she really wanted to be a playwright as well. And she'd written a, couple, a few plays of her own. Um, she'd had a few plays um, performed by kind of amateur societies. She was approached to do a, an adaptation of a Dorothy L. Sayers uh, novel because it was known that they were friends. And she ended up declining that offer. But she said to Dorothy L. Sayers, what if we wrote a play together based on your characters? And so this was in sort of January, February time of 1935. And so they decided to take what they described as Sayers' as proprietary characters. So Harriet Vane and Lord Peter Whimsey and you know Buncher, Buncher the Butler, and they would develop a play based on those characters. That was what turned into Busman's Honeymoon, which is you know, co-written um, really 50-50 between, between the two of them. The drafts of the play are held by the um, Muriel Wade Center. Muriel Wade? No, I always say Muriel Wade because there's so many Murials mm-hmm. in my book. Mar- the Marion Mar- Wade Mar- Center um, at Wheaton College in, in Illinois. And there's, um, you, know, you can sort of see that they're, they're going back and forth with each other. There's annotations in both of their handwritings alongside these, these draft, um, draft play. Um, and I think of it as a moment where it's really clear that Dorothy L. Sayers' friendship with Muriel St. Clair Byrne and with her partner, Marjorie Barber, I think was kind of the catalyst for um, Harriet Vane and, and Lord Peter Whimsey to become these more dimensional, complicated characters who are not just vehicles for, especially Whimsey, not not just being a vehicle for these kind of um, fun but a little stylized mystery stories, but actually they start to become novels about life and relationships and um you know, sort of the nature of being a person in the world. Mm. Um, other people have noticed that that evolution, of course, but I think that um, w- what became clear to me was that this was something that happened in community, in conversation with, um, with Byrne and with Barber. As regular listeners will know, the so-called rules of detective fiction strictly forbid the inclusion of romance plots in whodunits. But, as Mo says, Sayers and Byrne were interested in moving beyond those stock tropes to create something more recognisably human. And the origins of the desire to explore the tensions between love, partnership, writing and intellectual work through the characters of Peter and Harriet can be found in these writers' own lives. Sayers got married in 19... Oh, shoot. Uh, When did she get married? 1926. And so the friendship that developed, that sort of redeveloped the reconnection that happened in the late 1920s was really a friendship between two couples, um, Sayers and and Atherton Fleming, her husband, and Muriel St. Clair Byrne and her partner Marjorie Barber. Both of those were fairly complex relationships, you know, that neither of those were perfectly placid, you know, marriages or or partnerships. And so my sense is that they probably had a lot of conversation between each other, amongst each other about the nature of marriage, the nature of um, trying to have an, an egalitarian partnership, what it meant for one partner to earn more or to have more success than the other partner. And so I think that kind of out of those conversations and out of that that sense of shared experience is where the the turn comes to turn whimsy and vain into this kind of partnership or into this uh, lens for thinking through what would an ideal partnership actually look like. One of the most interesting things I learned from Mo's really excellent book is that the chronology of the whimsy vain novels is not what I'd always assumed. I thought that they must have been written in the order that they were published. Strong Poison, Have His Carcass, Gordy Knight, Busman's Honeymoon. But in fact, that wasn't the case. Number four came before number three. Sayers did it this way, 
in order to fit things around her collaboration with Byrne. The timing is kind of interesting. If I, if I can rewind to Strong Poison, she had introduced Harriet Vane as a as a character and as a as a love interest for for Whimsy in Strong Poison, which she wrote right around the same time as she was sort of rekindling this friendship with with Byrne and with Barber. And there are a few a few novels with Harriet Vane in them, and then she kind of it's almost as though she's not sure how to proceed with the relationship. There's a really funny letter that she's, she writes to, um, I believe it's Dorothy Rowe, saying, well, Lord Peter is anxious to get hitched, but I don't know if it's going to work out before he's too decrepit and old. And it's, she says something, but he's, you know, he's almost 45. He wants to get married before he's ancient. And she, she's, she's in her mid-40s at the same time. So she's clearly feeling this, you know, <laughs> this moment in life. So yeah, she sort of created this character, created this dynamic, and then and then kind of hit pause on it and r- writes these more dimensional, more complex stories in Murder Must Advertise and um, The Nine Tailors that suggest that she's kind of developing her range as a novelist, but Harriet Vane is very much to, to one side, you know, sort of mentioned in one line. Then in 1935, she and, and Byrne decide to write Busman's Honeymoon. And they imagine it as um, the honeymoon that Harriet and Peter go on after they've gotten married. Um, and so she's very clear that, okay, if we're going to write this play, then I have to figure out how it is that he, you know, at what point does Harriet accept this marriage proposal that he's famously repeating on, I think, April Fool's Day and her birthday every year. So she realizes that she's kind of committed herself to to working this out. And so in the early spring of 1935, Muriel St. Clair Byrne and, and, and Sayers write Busman's Honeymoon. Towards the late spring is when Sayers starts writing Gaudy Night. And her letters are, she, it's clear that she's very stressed out by the whole process. Muriel is sending her these sort of queries about the play. And do we really want this to happen in this scene? Are we sure that, you know, this we haven't left this plot, you know, plot hole dangling or she wouldn't mix a metaphor like that. <laughs> um, at the same time as Sayers is starting Gaudy Night. And so there's even a letter where she says, well, you know, I've, I've had to leave Harriet uncomfortably standing outside Somerville College, shifting from one foot to the other while I answer your letter about, about Busman's honeymoon. So it's clear that these are really simultaneous processes for her. Sayers also wrote a novelized version of Busman's honeymoon, although she was very strict with her publisher that it could not come out until Busman's honeymoon the play had been staged. And putting Peter Whimsey in the theatre turned out to be a big success. It was wildly popular, actually, and had financially it had a really uh, positive impact for both Sayers and for Byrne. Byrne had been making her living kind of doing um, adjunct teaching, essentially contingent, contingent teaching at various places, and took a year off to do her own research based on the proceeds from Busman's Honeymoon, and also moved to a much nicer house. And it's, she doesn't anywhere say sort of I paid for this with Busman's honeymoon, but it's clear that there was kind of a step up in, in their financial well-being as a result of, of that. And then Sayers used the proceeds to um, finance some. She was she turned to writing religious plays and kind of funded them, um, funded their tour and that sort of thing with with Busman's honeymoon. So yeah, it was really popular. Um, it wasn't amazingly received critically. People thought it, the critics thought it was a little silly, but but people really enjoyed it. Um, and it was the play was then actually um, released. It was published as well, and it was taken up by like repertory theaters and amateur theaters, including Dorothy Rose Theater. They actually put on a production of it as well. As an ardent fan of Gordy Knight myself, 
It was a great pleasure to me to read Mo's book and learn how much of what is in the novel has its origins directly in the experiences of the Mutual Admiration Society while they were at Oxford. The fictional Shrewsbury College isn't exactly Somerville, nor are any of the Don's precise portraits of real people. But there are recognisable elements from the letters the Mutual Admiration Society members wrote to each other, threaded all the way through the book. But above all, the feelings that Harriet Vane has in Gordy Knight about the successive generations of university women and how each cohort has pushed things a little bit further so that the next intake could benefit match up closely with Sayers's own experience. She was reluctant to return to Oxford for her own Gordies for years after she left, perhaps avoiding encounters with past versions of herself and old ambitions that had never been fulfilled. But when she did go back, it was because she'd reconnected with her old friends and begun to write collaboratively again. Alone, she'd been wary of connecting up the writer she had become with the student she had once been. But together, the Mutual Admiration Society could celebrate how far they had come. This episode of She Done It was written and narrated by me, Caroline Crampton. You can find out more about the podcast and everything it covers at shedoneitshow.com, where there are also transcripts of every episode. She Done It is edited by Ewan McAleese. Production assistance from Leandra Griffith. Member support for the She Done It book club from Connor McLaughlin. Thanks for listening. I'll be back soon with a new episode. Next time on She Done It. Notable trials.